So we are starting the Advent season today and run the next four Sundays. And the fifth Sunday this year will be Christmas Day itself. Sounds like we have an echo. Um, and Advent is really geared to be a, a time to prepare for Christmas, for the wonder of the Incarnation, that God became a man. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. It's really uh, one of the most fantastic things in all of history. And we live in a culture that is familiar with these truths to a degree. And the danger is that as we kind of enter this season, the Christmas season, the other things that are part of our culture in this season can, can kind of take over. So things like shopping, uh, busyness. It's, it's interesting how Christmas time is often a time of busyness in our schedule. Uh, and at times, those things can take over for uh, this season. And it really should be a time where, where instead of being kind of dominated by you know, the busyness and Black Friday deals and so forth, we should really just pause and wonder at just what Christmas is about. It is one of the most fantastic things in all of history. The most fantastic thing in all of history is that God, the Son, the God-Man, would die on a cross. Would die on the cross for us. Would bear our sins. Would suffer. And bearing those sins, the holy justice of God would, would suffer and die but then rise again on the third day. That's the most fantastic thing in history. Always will be, forever and ever. That's what will go on in heaven. Part of our joy will be just beholding that, seeing it clearly, celebrating that, rejoicing in that again and again. It will never grow old. It will only grow more incredible to us. But the second most incredible thing in all of history is that God, the Eternal One, the Infinite One, the the one who can not be fully known because he's so glorious, he's so incredible in all his characteristics, that this one who's infinite, who lives outside of time and space, who cannot be bounded by anything, took on flesh, became a human being. God became a man. And we know that starts out as a baby. starts out as a, as a baby in the womb. Starts out as, as a couple cells and grows from there. That God would take on flesh is just amazing. And we should, during this season, just ponder what that means. Take time to ponder and think about what that means. Just the wonder that God has become man. God the Son has become man. So what I want to do in, in this Advent series is just to help you with that by proclaiming God's Word. And we're going to dig into John chapter 1. It's a great place to talk about the, the wonder of the Incarnation. That's the name of the uh, mini-series here for Advent, the, the Incarnation. And we're going to take time just to look at the different aspects of that. We're going to take time today to look at the truth that God the Son has existed from eternity. He's the eternal Son. So today we'll talk about that. and We'll look at verses 1 and 2 and 18. Then we'll look at His divinity, that He's fully divine. He's fully God the next week. And then that He's fully man. And then we'll look at the whole Gospel of John as we learn about how that, those two natures, His divinity and His humanity, interact together in one person. Uh, and then on Christmas Eve, we will look at the core of this section of John in John chapter 1, 1-18, verse 12. And we'll talk about that. 
So my prayer, and I trust your prayer for the season, is Lord, help me slow down and help me to ponder. Help me to see your glory. Your glory in the incarnation. So let's pray that he would do that even as we ponder John chapter 1 and that God would speak to us through his word. So Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you can rescue Christmas for us. You can rescue us from prioritizing other things that may be fine, but can end up distracting us from the wonder that you, God, became a man. You took on flesh. And all that that means. We want to see your glory. We want to wonder at this. We want to learn anew. And so we ask you, Lord, as we look at John chapter 1, would you grant us power? Would you grant us the ability to, to see and behold and to understand and be transformed by this truth? Would You shake us out of lethargy and familiarity, Lord God, that that we would see that this is glorious and wonderful and there would be a holy hush that would characterize our time and our time of Advent as we live in light of this. Lord, we thank You. Ask You, Lord, to help me to serve Your people in this way. Come Holy Spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. You can look in your Bibles or follow along on the overhead. John chapter 1, verses 1-18. to It says in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to His own people, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me, because He was before Me. And from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. God's Word from John 1, 1-18. The author J.B. Priestley says, there is of course no sense at all in trying to describe the Grand Canyon. Those who have, seen it will not, uh, those who have not seen it will not believe any possible description. 
Those who have seen it know that it cannot be described. It is not a showplace, a beauty spot, but a revelation. The Colorado River made it, but you feel when you are there that God gave the Colorado River its instructions. The thing is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony in stone and magic lights. I've heard rumors of visitors who were disappointed. The same people will be disappointed at the Day of Judgment. And then George Wharton James says, Though only 217 miles long, the Grand Canyon expresses within that distance more than any one human mind yet has been able to comprehend or interpret to the world. Famous word masters have attempted it. Great canvas and color masters have tried it, but all alike have failed. They know they cannot describe it, but they proceed to exhaust their vocabularies in talking about it and in trying to make clear to others what they saw and felt. When we try to grasp the fullness of the meaning of today's passage and its truth, we are like those who've never traveled to the Grand Canyon listening to someone describe the indescribable. And the problem with us is further intensified because we've heard this portion of Scripture perhaps again and again and, and perhaps have not put in adequate time to just ponder and wonder what's being said and what it means. What it means for us, what it means for the whole universe. And what I trust God will do is we'll, we'll begin to open up our eyes a bit to see the wonder that is the Incarnation. That we could experience it and, and we, could, we could have it come through to our lives in a, in a fresh new way that would change how we think. How we think about God. How we think about ourselves, how we think about others, how we think about life. So let's dig into His Word expecting that He will reveal Himself, that we will experience a degree of the wonder of the Incarnation through His Word. That's what His Word is meant to do. This section in Scripture uh, is what's called the prologue in the Gospel of John. Sorry, I just need to adjust my ear thing. My ear changed size from last week somehow. Um, this beginning of the Gospel of John is called the prologue, and it's an, an introduction to the whole Gospel. It has connections to uh, different things that go on throughout the Gospel. I don't have time to get into that, but it it's, reads like poetry, particularly in the, in the original language. It's, it's poetic. Uh, if you just were to look at verses 1 and 2, you, you see, uh, if you just look at the nouns that are there, the repetition of things, like in poetry. So there's things being emphasized as words are being repeated. So if you look in verses 1-2, to two, you'll see uh, just following the nouns, it says in the beginning, Word, Word, God, God, Word, and then beginning, and then God. So, so it's poetic in that sense. There's also poetry in John chapter 1 uh, that's in the form of what's called a chiasm. Um, that just is an X. Uh, the Greek X. Um, in, and there's structure in these verses 1-18 through 18, that follow an X. And, and in particular, I think we have it, if you can move forward to that slide that has the colored letters on it, uh, you'll see, and I don't know if you can see all that, uh, but there's a structure to those 18 verses, and it's a uh, kind of a descending and ascending structure that kind of all point in parallel, there's parallel that goes on, to the core of the section. So if you were to look at those verses, if you have your Bible, you might want to look right there. Uh, you'll see these parallel statements being said. And it focuses in on the core. And you would use a, 
chiastic structure back in those days to emphasize something. It's kind of like poetry. And, and you're emphasizing the things that, that's at the core of the chiasm, at the kind of the crux of that X. By the way, that's the middle of verse 12. That's at the crux of it. And that is, but He gave the right to become children of God. That's, that's the core. That's the focus of all these things. Ultimately, the call of that truth there. And we're going to take time in going through the series to look at the different levels, and then on Christmas Eve, we're going to look, talk about that core. The, the truth of that core in verse 12. But if you start out in verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then ver- look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. God. The only God who's at the Father's side has made Him known. Those are parallel ideas. And they're stating basically we're talking about the Word. We're talking about the Word becoming flesh here. And, that, and then the, the focus of this being that people would be rescued and become children of God. That's the focal point. So it's describing kind of the storyline of what He does. And so it starts out, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is God. So, so where is the Word? Where, the Word is with God. The Word is God. That's the parallel there. Then the next layer, uh, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Christ. So that things were done through Christ. Things were made, and then grace and truth came through Christ. So there's through common word for through. Then the next level, uh, verse, verse um, 4, I think. Uh, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Uh, the light shines in the darkness. Parallels, and from Him fullness we have all received, from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So there's things from Him. Then the next level is someone who testified about Him, John. That's parallel. And then the next level is the idea of Him coming into and dwelling among us. His incarnation. So verses... Um, Verses 9 and 10 and parallel with verse 14. And then the next level is the idea of His own. Who are His own? He came to His own, but His own did not know Him. So His, his natural people, His ethnic people, were His own, but they didn't know Him. But then those who are born not of blood of the will of, of flesh or of the will of man, but of God, are truly His own, His own family. So that's parallel there. And then verse 12, kind of the core of it. To all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name. That's calling what you, how you respond to Him. And then what is the result of that? He gave the right to become children of God. That's the structure of this prologue. That's what's going on. It's poetic. It's emphasizing who He is. So this prologue in John is a great place for Christmas, obviously, right? It's a great place for us to ponder who He is. That He's the eternal Son. He is fully God. He became a man, became fully man. And He... He dwelt among us as fully God and fully man, making God known in how He lived and rescuing us that we might become the children of God. It's really the, the message series and really the, the whole truth really of who Christ is. So each week, we're going to look at a different aspect. This week, I just want to take time to talk about the first part, that He is the eternal Son. And if you would like... Uh, a copy of this, you can just let me know. I'd be glad to send it to you so you can have a look at it if that helps you. It's available online too. Uh, you'll see a lot of Bible scholars would point to this structure in John chapter 1. But I want to talk a little bit about the truth that He's the eternal Son. And verses 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
Jesus is called the Word here. And we don't tend to call Him the Word too much, but He's called the Word here in John chapter 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So why does John use the Word to describe Jesus? Well, it looks like he was tapping into some cultural ideas that helped him describe who Jesus is. One of the cultural ideas was among the Greeks. The Greeks believed that there was this central principle, this central truth, this central idea that was behind the whole universe. Uh, there, was, there was this word, this logos in their language, this, this principle, this first principle that kind of led to govern the whole universe. Not unlike today, actually, scientists, physicists, astrophysicists, astrophysicists in particular, as well as particle physicists, are, uh, believe that there is a central theory called the theory of everything. Um, that there's this one principle that's the core truth. But John's tapping into the Greek understanding that there's, that there's this core truth, and he's saying the core truth, this core idea is Jesus. He's the core idea. So he's tapping that, adding a twist to it, saying it's ultimately not just an a inanimate idea, a theoretical idea, it's a real person. The second person of the Trinity is the Word. He is the principle behind the creation of the universe and how the universe runs and what its purpose is. He is the Word. He's also probably tapping into a Jewish understanding of this Word as well because his audience would include both those from Jewish background and the Gentile Greek background. And they certainly understood what was going on here. It says, in the beginning. How does their Bible start? How does our Bible start in Genesis 1? In the beginning, God, right? And, and so John is saying, in the beginning, the Word. So he's making that connection that this is God in the beginning. But he's helping them to understand that there's, a, there's three persons of the Trinity and he's talking specifically about the second person of the Trinity. There were people who understood the Word. They understood that God had created all things by His Word. They understood that He reveals Himself by His Word. They understood that He delivers and heals with His Word. They understand that He judges with His Word. That God's Word has this function in God's universe of doing all these things. So the idea of the Word is when they understand. And they are being told that Jesus is that ultimate Word. He is the One. He is the One who reveals God. He is the One who delivers and heals. He is the One who judges. He is the truth. He is the Word incarnate. As this passage will teach us. That's what's going on here. John is describing this Word that is God. That is this ultimate principle. And I think it's wonderful. So I, I think it's wonderful. As, as, I, as I think about the world of science and how they engage the theory of everything... And, and there's nothing wrong, by the way, with trying to figure out the theory of how things work. They're looking at the physics side of it. And by the way, uh, just a little bit of a geek tangent, if there's any fellow geeks here. Um, there's two main theories in physics right now that are seemingly incompatible. That's what's going on. There's the theory of general relativity. That's the theory that works well for, for big things like planets and solar systems and travel through space. And there's some really wild stuff that we've learned about space-time and moving across time and all that. Um, and, and so that, that's one theory. Then there's a theory for really small stuff, uh, quantum field theory, that, that explains what goes on for little things like atoms and molecules and subatomic particles. And there's some really cool stuff going on with that where things actually will jump, tunnel from space, one place in space-time to another. 
without going through it. That's like, what's going on there? We don't know. Uh, but there's theories about that. But the two theories don't work together. They seem to contradict each other. So the theory of everything is trying to come up with something that makes them connect. Uh, the latest is a string theory thing if you're a physicist, but I won't talk about that. But anyhow, they, they, um, there's just these, these ideas they are trying to come up with this theory of everything. I, I think that's really cool, but we know the theory of everything. He's the Word. He's Jesus. That's the theory. That's what's behind. That's the truth. That's the principle. That's the Word. Christ, God the Son, is the Word. The Logos. And He is so good to reveal Himself in Scripture to us. We don't have to wonder how things work. We know. It says here, the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. Now it says in the beginning was the Word. It, it doesn't just mean that you know, before time was the Word. It does mean that. It doesn't just mean that you know, like there's just, we're talking about a progression of things. Like Time was about to start and there was this guy called the Word who was there right at the you know, the beginning of, of the whole thing. It does mean that, but it means more than that. It's speaking of His preeminence. That He's over everything. That He's God over everything. He's in charge of time and space. He's in charge of history. He's in charge of the, everything that's going to follow. He's there in the beginning. He's the central reality to it all. He, he existed there. He's eternally and preeminently God. He's there as God. And that's what this is speaking to. And, and this idea of God existing before time, before creation, before the foundation of the world is throughout Scripture. You can find a lot of verses on this. And that's worth slowing down and thinking about. Though it's one of those things that kind of like drives you crazy because we can't figure it out because we live in time and space. And to think like there wasn't, there was, there's the possibility to live outside of space and time doesn't make any sense to us because we can't comprehend it. But God lives outside of space and time. He's eternal. He's existed from eternity past. He exists to eternity future. He not only exists you know, beyond in, in these eternities, but He exists outside of space and time. He, does, it's, he doesn't have to live in space and time like we do. We only know succession of moments, right? So what I did a little like five minutes ago is past and it's gone. And we're just moving through space and time right now. We're going to keep on going. That's life. That's what it will be. We're created beings who dwell in the universe. And that's God's design in that He glorifies His name and He makes Himself known and He rescues us and all these incredible things. But He's not subject to that. He's over it. And Jesus, as God the Son, is over all that. He's dwelling with God the Father. God the Holy Spirit. The triune God is eternal and outside of space and time and over it. You see, the Christmas story can be really quaint and nice. We can look at the baby in the manger and think, oh, this is wonderful. What a wonderful story. The, the poor parents and they find a place, there's no room in the inn. And, and we can kind of get nostalgic. And you know, maybe there's a, there's a place for that in it. But this is eternal God taking on flesh. This is the One who lives outside of space and time, who's over all things, who's so infinitely glorious and incredible that He cannot be contained inside of the universe. He's not dependent on the universe. He's over the universe. This is the glorious eternal One. Perfect and holy. Eternal. Doesn't need creation. Doesn't need us subjecting Himself to creation and taking on flesh and becoming man. That's amazing. That's incredible. 
And your appreciation, my appreciation of Christmas depends on getting that He's the eternal Son. That He's the eternal One. He's always existed. He's beyond it all. That He would humble Himself and enter into our humanity is astounding. And has so many implications. Most importantly, it has implications for salvation. But it has implications even in how we think about humanity and we think about God's purposes and how we fit into these. So I am submitting to you that for you to be in wonder this Christmas, you need to take time to ponder that He's the eternal Son. Taking on flesh. Becoming man. He's the eternal, infinitely glorious One. Perfect in holiness. Perfect and infinite in His power. Infinite in His wisdom. Infinite in His love. Infinite in His glory. Dwelling in unapproachable light. Glorious beyond our ability to even start to think about how glorious He is. Forever and ever. This is God the Son taking on flesh. Not just a cute little baby, but God. Eternal God as a baby. John 17 teaches us a little bit about Him being the eternal Son and and what was going on. There's there's hints here that are really profound. So if you could project that, you have it great. John 17, 1-5. This is a prayer that Jesus prays before He's going to the cross. And it's kind of the conclusion of His ministry. He's praying and talking to the Father. And it says in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life that they may know You the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. There's a bunch of things that He's saying in this. It's packed with truth. He's praying, and, and, and you probably see it in the beginning and at the end. He's speaking of glory. He's speaking of the Father glorifying, being glorified, and the, and the Son being glorified. There's this mutual glorification in the Trinity. The, the Father and the Son one to another here in this passage. And He asked in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. There has been a glory that the Trinity has enjoyed for eternity outside of time. This infinite glory. And Jesus is saying, now, Father, glorify Me with this glory that we've known. I'm here. I've been sent to bring You glory. That You would be glorified. Now glorify Me. That's what's going on. So He's speaking of this eternal glory. He's speaking of those the Father has given Him as well. The Father has given people to the Son. That's what's being said here. Who are those people? Disciples. And if you read the rest of the passage, you'll see they're present and future disciples. Believer, brother or sister in Christ, you are one of those ones given by the Father to the Son. So behind all that's going on in redemptive history and what God's doing 
through the Gospel and what He's doing through Christ is the Father has given people to the Son and the Son is accomplishing something for those people. There's an eternal glorious plan behind any of the, any of the things that have happened here in John. Before they happened, there was the Father and the Son with, with this plan with the Holy Spirit as well. It's interesting to see that these things are past tense. You've given them to Me. I've experienced Your glory. The Son has come to accomplish His work. And this prayer is bookended by these statements on the glory of God. And that this glory is to reverberate through Jesus' life and mission. So we have a little window into the relationship of the Father and the Son in John 17. And it's really amazing just to slow down and think about it. And to place Christmas in that context. To place what happened in Christmas with God taking on flesh and then what that led to, His life, His ministry, His death, His resurrection. In the context of this eternal relationship between Father and Son. And there's some amazing things in John 17. And I'd love just to preach on John 17 right now and, and talk about what's there. Take some time perhaps today to look further. There's implications in that that are astounding. But there's this picture. I just want us to get that picture of the Father and the Son in this eternal relationship, this glorious relationship and enjoying each other, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in their glory, sharing their glory, planning and dreaming perhaps, if we can put those words into what God would be doing, but planning and dreaming about what they would do together in creation. That's going on before anything happens. They are sovereign over the whole universe and everything that's going to happen. And they have participated together in accomplishing this plan. That's what Jesus is getting at. That's the background to Christmas, guys. It's so outside and beyond us. But it includes us as well. But just getting that point that He's the eternal Son. I I think of um, different illustrations. I imagine you've heard of Johann Sebastian Bach. You guys heard of Bach? He's one of the greatest composers of all time. Um, Perhaps you don't know though that he had a son, Johann Christian Bach. And Johann Christian Bach was a great composer as well. And I just think with... These two, imagine what it was like in that household. You've got one of the greatest composers of all time, and you've got his son, Johann Christian Bach, who's a great composer. Imagine what it was like to be in that household, to hear the discussions about music that went on. To hear uh, maybe the jam sessions, if they had jam sessions, I don't know, on violins and stuff back then. uh, Harpsichords, right? That was before pianos. You know, the jam sessions that went on. The the kind of... improvisation that they did. The things they talked about. Just to be there with them and to experience that. So before Johann Christian Bach had become anyone famous, there was a household of this musical genius that went on. And from that came Johann Christian Bach's life. Similarly, with Christ, God the Father and God the Son, there's been this eternal relationship that's glorious. That's full of, of glory and wisdom and plans that are just incomprehensible. Before there ever was Christmas, before Christ was known, this was going on. That's the background here. And we need to uh, appreciate that and understand that I think to get the wonder of Christmas, to get what's going on and to get its implications. I, I hope that makes sense. It, it may seem a little different. Oh, I've never heard Christmas presented this way. 
But I think it's a huge part of understanding this and appreciating it and being in wonder when God shows up as a baby. It's not just a cute little baby in a manger scene. This is eternal glory. Humbling Himself. Taking on flesh. To accomplish the Father's will. To, to spread His glory. To finish the plan. To work together in union in the Trinity. The wonder of the Incarnation is made all the richer by realizing that the eternal Son, fully divine, became fully human for our sake. Yes, for our sake. It would be glorious enough just to think about the humbling of God to become a man, to take on flesh. Eternal glory taking on human flesh. But it was part of the plan. It was part of the plan that God had. God the triune God had to come and to rescue people. To magnify His name. To spread His glory. To rescue people from living for themselves and living for a corrupted or secondary glory to turn to live in His glory for Him. It was part of His plan to rescue you, to rescue me. He was planning before the foundation of the world in that place of eternal fellowship and glory to die on a cross for sinners. To come and finish the work. He knew there would be a fall. He knew there would need to be a Savior. The Savior was planned to be Christ, God the Son in flesh. So there was a plan to, that He would come suffer and die on the cross for you. So when you look at that baby in the manger, if you are a believer, you should understand that there was intentionality in that. God, eternal God becoming flesh for me. They thought, the triune God thought of me personally. Scripture abounds with quotations on this. It's not just a, you know, a, a fuzzy, warm idea that somehow we invented. No, it's in Scripture. It transcends culture. It's the truth. So Ephesians 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Jeremiah 31.3, and speaking of His people, He said, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. God in His eternal glory has loved His people. And so God the Son chose to follow the Father's instructions and become human for us in His great love to rescue us, to redeem us, because God the Father had chosen us before the foundation of the world. God had set His sights on us. He had seen you. He had known you. And He determined to rescue you through the Son. That's what is behind the Christmas story. That's the truth. It was for our sake that He took on flesh, that He became a man. And we as believers should ground our lives in that eternal love. That's where you ground your life. That's where you, that's where you set your foundation. My foundation, our foundation should be that the Father has loved us and chose us. That's the ultimate foundation behind 
all the other truths that are important truths, right? We are accountable for our actions. We're called, all, every human is called to respond to the gospel. But behind all those truths is this ultimate truth. If you have come to believe in Christ, there is an ultimate truth behind the other truths, behind your actions, is this truth that there's a previous action before the foundation of the world where the Father loved you and chose to rescue you. And He loved you in His love. His infinite, eternal love that is so great that He would send His Son to rescue you. That the eternal, glorious One would would give up His glory, give up His riches, and become poor for your sake to rescue you from your sin and make you a child. To make you His own. A child of God. That's the foundation of our lives. That's the foundation of our identities even deeper than the other aspects of our identity is that the Father has loved us. This is a sure promise for the believer. And there's a call here to live in it. So there is at Christmas time the call to just be in wonder. Eternal God becomes a man. And to have our hearts overwhelmed that behind this was the eternal love of God for me. That He came to rescue me. He came to rescue us. His people. Charles Spurgeon says about this, it, it, it makes the tears run down one's cheeks to think that we should, we should have an interest in that decree and counsel of the Almighty Three. When everyone that should be blood-bought had its name inscribed in God's eternal book. He thought of you before you had a being. When as yet the sun and the moon were not. When the sun, the moon, and the stars slept in the mind of God like unborn force in an acorn cup. When the old sea was not yet born, long ere this infant world lay in its swaddling bands of mist, then God had inscribed your name upon the heart and upon the hands of Christ indelibly to remain forever. And does not this make thee love God? This truth that the triune God has loved us from the foundation of the world should fill our hearts with wonder and gratitude. We should be amazed that the eternal Son, fully divine, became fully human for our sake. If the band could come up as we close. I don't know all that's going on in your life right now. God does. I don't know how you feel about yourself, how you feel about the season, but God does. But I do know this. That God wants you to experience something bigger and better than even your present circumstances, as good as they might be. He wants you to feel certain ways about yourself. And this experience and perspective comes from being grounded in these truths we've talked about this morning. He wants you to be grounded in the truth that the eternal Son, fully divine, became fully human for your sake. That the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit thought of you from the foundation of the world. The Father chose you. The Son went to rescue you. The Holy Spirit brought the truth to your life. To get your eyes off of yourself and your circumstances and to put them on Christ. God the Son becoming man to rescue me. And to ground your life in, in this fathomless love, this eternal love that comes from the eternal counsels of God. Build your life on it. Let it dominate how you think. 
How you think about yourself. How you think about your life. How you think about your short 70 or 90 years here and how they fit in the grand scheme of it all as the One who rules all has planned things out and will accomplish His will. To live in light of this truth that He has loved us with an everlasting love. That the eternal God took on flesh. To find your identity and your strength there. If you're not yet a believer, you can know and live in the same truth. It's simple. You simply need to turn from yourself and sin and say, no, I'm not going to live there anymore. I don't want to live there. I don't have the power to, to change myself, but I'm turning and turning to the Lord. I'm believing that Christ has come for me. Because His invitation is to all. To all who would receive. That's how we operate. We operate on that truth. We don't get into the metaphysics trying to figure out how does it work if He's in control and, and offers for me. No, we just simply respond and say, yes, I've received. So you can receive this truth, this gift of salvation, and live in it. Know that His life and death and resurrection were for your sins. And then having believed, you can know behind that is ultimately the choice of God to rescue you from the eternal love of the triune God. Guys, there's nothing better this Christmas, nothing more important, than to be amazed and to receive and to live in the truth that the eternal Son, fully divine, became fully human for our sake. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask You to open our eyes and help us see these truths. Help us comprehend them. Help us apply them. Help us live in them. Help us celebrate them, Lord. We thank You for Your Word and, and how it helps us. And we ask You, Lord, to draw our attention to that which is truly glorious. You, Lord Jesus, the eternal Son, taken on flesh for our sake. Be glorified in it, we pray, our great God. Amen.